From Schwartz Media, I'm Kara Jensen-McKinnon. This is 7am. Much of the country has been hit by torrential rain and communities across Victoria and New South Wales are inundated with floodwaters. But this is just the start. According to the Bureau of Meteorology, we could be facing an entire summer of floods and cyclones. As Australia braces for the worsening effects of climate change, experts say we are still too focused on disaster relief and that adapting and preparing communities for disaster is underfunded. Today, a lead author for the IPCC's Global Climate Change Assessment Report, Dr Johanna Nalau, on the summer ahead and adapting to live through the climate crisis. It's Thursday, October 13. Johanna, this week we learned what the weather has in store for us during the next six months with the Bureau of Meteorology releasing its forecast and, and frankly it makes for some pretty grim reading. So can you tell me a bit about what was in it and how we should interpret that information? Yeah, thanks Kara. Yeah, so the bomb has released its severe weather outlook um, on Tuesday. I would say it, it is pretty pretty grim reading. So it is warning that we are in for a summer of flooding and cyclones, uh, cyclones with increased risk of both, and that there is 70% chance of at least 11 cyclones with an early start cyclone season very likely. Welcome to the Bureau of Meteorology Severe Weather and Tropical Cyclone Long-Term Forecast for October 2022 to April 2023. Now moving on to the Tropical Cyclone Outlook. Typically, the official cyclone season is officially from November through to April. However, cyclones can occur at any part of the year. What the warming climate does is that it's, it's resulting in fewer tropical cyclones, actually, but those that do form are trending to be a lot stronger. And then they are also pushing further south, which for countries like Australia, obviously, that's a major worry because we have cities, for instance, in the southeast Queensland region, Brisbane and the Gold Coast. We haven't had one since the 1950s. So all of that storm activity and extra water is really going to test the communities. Now just having a look at trends in heat. So just to note that Australia's climate has warmed by about 1.44 degrees Celsius over the 1910 to 2019 period. In that same report, the bomb is also warning of increased chances of bushfires and heat waves throughout the summer. And many people don't know that, but heat waves are actually Australia's deadliest natural disaster. And the recent trend shows that intense heat events are occurring more often. And uh, 43 extreme heat days in 2019 is the highest on record. It is really a grim warning of what's to come after a year that has, I mean, 2022 has been just <laughs> full of flooding, rain and other natural disasters. And we still haven't covered from that. So what that really means is that that a lot of the climate change impacts that that are being, for instance, in discussing media that would happen in the future, some of them, we are already seeing those implications here in Australia. And, I mean, that's obviously no secret. As you said, 2022 has been pretty hellish and we're already seeing right now some pretty extreme weather events happening across New South Wales and Victoria. So just how dangerous is the situations that some communities could be facing? Victorian residents are being warned to prepare for the state's biggest downpour of the year. Yeah, so look, Victoria is now facing another storm system and flooding as well. And the Premier Dan Andrews has already warned communities to stockpile three days worth of food because some of the areas, for instance, around the Great Dividing Range might be cut off. 
we know that our catchments are full. We know that we've had record rainfall to this point uh, and the ground is absolutely sodden. So even a minor amount of rain would be a risk in terms of flooding, uh, but it's not a minor rain event that we are forecasting. It'll be significant rainfall. We're seeing in New South Wales, we already have flooding across the state. And regional New South Wales has this time again been particularly affected. Top story this hour. Sydney is about to break the record for its wettest year in history as multiple rain bands loaded up with tropical moisture dump unusually large amounts of rain across New South Wales and the eastern states. Earlier this week, the centre of Dubbo, for instance, was underwater. And there are over 100 flood alerts in place for flooding in New South Wales on, on Wednesday. Today, and it's because of scenes like this. Roads and bridges are being swallowed up by water and as rivers continue to rise, residents are being cut off. You know, we are already experiencing a lot of adverse weather this year. And what the report is, is saying from BOM is that we have to start preparing for more flooding and more rain and, and more extreme weather conditions for this year. And these extreme weather events that are hitting, you know, they seem to be hitting so often now that the communities that are hardest hit don't even really have the time to rebuild before they hit again. I'm thinking of towns like Lismore, which has been hit with a so-called one in 100 year event four times this year already. So as many communities across the country are dealing with extreme weather events, what can we learn from what has happened in a place like Lismore? Look, I think there's lots and lots of lessons for that, especially in how we adapt to future future climate impacts. What we saw in Lismore, people are still displaced. There's, you know, many, many of the people didn't really receive the adequate warnings but before it was too late. And a lot of them are in limbo. They don't know what to do. They're waiting for decisions for different agencies from different levels of government telling them, are they allowed to build there? You know, what, what is the land use plan? There has been financial commitments for a flood modelling study that's supposed to look at some of those options. But at the moment, there hasn't been an overall decision across that community as to what their future is going to be like. And that is an insanely stressful situation. So I know that some people, they have got their insurance payouts and some of them are rebuilding, but there's a lot of uncertainty. There hasn't been clear direction as to what's going to happen with the CBD what's going to happen with the land use planning. And we really have to think about the future. So adaptation is really about thinking, okay, if we have more of these kinds of events in the future, how can we keep our communities safe? How can we have thriving communities in in these areas? And there is a chance for rethinking maybe some of the, you know, how the CBD is built, but also with the housing designs. And so the real question is, how do we adapt in a changing climate? We'll be back after this. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, the Saturday Paper, and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. 
I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Johanna, we're talking about how we can keep our communities safe from climate events, and you're a lead author for the latest IPCC report, which means you're at the cutting edge of understanding how climate change is already impacting our world. So why do you think it is that we're still reacting rather than planning for natural disasters like flooding when we know the risks and damage that they can cause? Look, <laughs> I think there's there's definitely a range of reasons, but I think for adaptation, I mean, Australia used to be one of the leading countries on adaptation. So 2007, there was a really heavy investment in, in climate change adaptation in terms of the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility. The National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility was given $30 million when launched. Its job was to develop the knowledge that decision makers from both the Commonwealth and industry needed on how best to deal with the impact of climate change. So we actually got evidence-based information what adaptation can look like um, in, in different sectors across Australia and, and communities across Australia. Five years later, it's fostered 140 projects across 33 universities around Australia. And that funding was then geared down after the phase one. The National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility has been going for about five years, but the federal government hasn't extended its funding. Disaster spending has also been focused really just more on, on recovery. And, and it is an extraordinarily expensive way um, of doing things. So we have, we have the National um, Climate Resilience and Adaptation Strategy, and there has been lots of commitments under that, for instance, in creating the National Adaptation Policy Office, but also investing in, in updating COSTADAP, which is an online tool that, for instance, local governments can use to assess their, their risks and inform their decision-making on the coastal components of adaptation. But I think, yeah, I think there is there's a need to restart that conversation for Australia, for the national plan and strategy. So what does it look like to live in Australia in a changing climate? And so what do you think it is that's actually stopping us from being more proactive? If it is better, as you say, for Australia financially, what has stopped governments from from funding preparation for these disasters and, and protecting communities ahead of time? I think there's two reasons. So one is that climate change itself has been such a contested policy issue in Australia that it all it has really in the recent years, it has been in the back burner and people have been having to fight to have even conversation, a sensible <laughs> conversation. Um, I think the other, other thing is that adaptation, I think, is really misunderstood. So because we have been had to fight to have any action on climate change, and now there's a really great urgency to have strong climate policy and reduce emissions. But at the same time, I see organisations and people not understanding what adaptation is. Adaptation is just as important, especially for communities like Lismore. So we really need to have start having a national, sensible conversation about how we can adapt in a changing climate and how can we actually secure communities if we if they are facing more heat waves, more bushfires, more floods. What is that? What is the plan? And and I think for me, even more important is that what is the vision? So what is the future vision overall for a well-adapting Australia? And I think sadly, uh, these events often spur people thinking about adaptation and, and these things. So I'm hoping that this can also result in in more awareness that we need to reduce emissions and we need to adapt. 
Okay. And so talking about adaptation, these communities that are already at risk, how can we practically prepare them for climate disasters, the ones that we know will keep coming? I mean, what does it look like to actually build a community that is resilient to floods and cyclones? With climate change adaptation, there's lots of different strategies that these communities could benefit from. So for instance, thinking about rebuilding. So so if we are rebuilding in, in these same places, so are there, for instance, flood-resistant designs and materials that they could be using? And, and where are they going to be outsourcing those? Uh, coordinating community preparations as well. So we saw that some communities fared a lot better because they had had more community disaster and resilience training. And, and they so they knew they knew what to do. Um, and, and some had to self-organize. So I know cases from Northern Rivers, for instance, in Ocean Shores, the community had to, for eight days, they were actually in charge of their, their own, own recovery. You know, there's examples of land swaps and chasing land use planning for these kind of high-risk areas, but really better coordination between government agencies and clear responsibilities, who is responsible for what. But I think in the end, it always comes down to a shared conversation as to what is the future for these communities that live in high-risk places? And again, what is the future vision for and as for Australia at the national level, what are we doing on putting those structures and architecture in place so that we can make sure that there is coordinated effort to help Australians to adapt to climate change? And Johanna, we now have a government that has committed to the Paris targets and they say that they do believe in the urgency of climate change, but it also seems like they're unwilling to spend the sort of money that it would take to get some of these infrastructures like you've discussed built. So do you think that they will actually commit to the kind of spending we'll need to prepare ourselves for the climate crisis? Look, I think that relates really to what I said before in, in terms of that there is a really big urgency and, and some of the election commitments were on, you know, getting a climate policy and climate act in place. And, you know, that's where the focus has been. I do think that since we have the national strategy for, for resilience and adaptation and we have the national adaptation policy office as well, so I do believe that those will be put in place in the next few years. You know, once these kind of big ticket items or election commitments have been ticked off, I think there is a lot more space to have these conversations about adaptation. And adaptation, we know that it pays dividends. For instance, actually climate adaptation would save Australia $380 billion in gross domestic product over the next three years. You know, it's, it's good for the economy, but it also reduces, for instance, disaster recovery costs. Finally, Johanna, it's all well and good, I suppose, for policymakers to have high hopes for the future, but there are communities right now who are, who are being threatened. So do you have any real hope that those communities will be able to adapt in time? Look, that's a billion dollar question. I think my work in adaptation has shown, has at least shown to me that there is hope. So, you know, climate adaptation is about envisioning futures, but also thinking about how can we keep our communities safe and how can we have a sensible conversation what that looks like, how we live in a changing climate. I think we all wish that we had a, had a crystal ball that we could see to the future. But I think with adaptation, the best, the best you can do is to make sure that you are prepared, but also rethinking maybe some of the traditions or rethinking some of the ways that we live. So I think attracting the innovative thinking in to Australia, I think that's one of the key things that I'm I'm positive about that we can adapt to these impacts. Johanna, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. 
Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young has declared she will be supporting the Yes campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Hansen-Young made the comments as the Greens still determine the party's official position on the referendum. Earlier in the week, Senator Lydia Thorpe strongly denied reports she had been considering supporting the No campaign. And Tourism Australia has announced the new face of Australia's international tourism campaign. Ruby the Roo will be the face of the first tourism ads launched since the COVID pandemic began. She is a computer-generated kangaroo and will be voiced by the Australian actor Rose Byrne. I'm Kara Jensen-McKinnon. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.